Today's sermon text comes from Luke 18, 1 through 8. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice, so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? You may be seated. Well, please join me in prayer. Father, I'm reminded that you often use weakness to exhibit your power. And Lord, the power that we find this morning comes from your word, which is living and active, which for 2,000 years has called people out of darkness, has encouraged the discouraged, has strengthened the weak, has encouraged the, the, the fearful. And Lord, here again we are to, to hear your voice speak to us in the depths of our spirit. And who is competent for that? We ask your spirit to come. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Long time ago, long time for me, for some of you, is blink of an eye. But uh, for me, anyways, it was a long time ago when I was in middle school. I heard Joe Stoll preach. At that time, he was the president of the Moody Bible Institute. He was a president there for probably 20 years. Um, he was one of those preachers that could preach the phone book and you'd be spellbound. He just was an incredibly gifted communicator. And, uh, and he told a story that stuck with me. I don't remember anything else from the sermon. I don't remember what he was preaching on. I don't even remember the point of the story. But I remember the story. It stuck with me. Uh, so he was president of Moody Bible Institute. And he had an international student, who I think was from, from China, who was completing a degree. And his student, he'd gotten to know him during his studies. He was finishing up his degree, preparing to head back to China to serve with, I think, his home church back in China. And so Joe Stoll was meeting with him, just finding out what his plans were for the future, asking him you know, what, what his, where he was going next. And at some point, Joe Stoll kind of asked him you know, kind of a leading questions like, well, is, is the fact that you have a degree from a, a well-known U.S. institution, like that's, that's got to be kind of a big deal. Like, I'm guessing your church leaders back home would be really excited uh, to have that. And the international student paused and said, well, actually, what will happen is I'll go home, and the leaders of my church will hear me pray, and then they'll decide. And that has stuck with me because that is so humbling. Because we tend to think, well, you know, a degree is such a big deal. Um, knowledge is such a big deal. And here the church is saying, you know, we don't really care what degrees you have, but whether you really are a man of prayer is far more indicative of whether you'll be an effective church leader or not. And that's stuck with me. It's so humbling. It's, it's stuck with me because I am, truthfully, I'm, I'm a beginner when it comes to the life of prayer. 
My whole life, I've found reading very easy, studying very easy. It's much easier for me to sit down and study the Bible for an hour than to pray for an hour. And so when I hear stories like this, I'm, I'm humbled by it. But it's interesting here, Jesus, after preaching on the kingdom, if you remember last week, introduces that there's going to be a first phase of the kingdom, which will be the kingdom present but not fully fulfilled. And in that stage, we're all living. We're waiting for Jesus to come back and to, and to fulfill his kingdom, bring it to completion. And in that, in that meantime, as we're waiting, he, Jesus then teaches us to always pray. In this context of we're, we're waiting for the return of our Lord, the first teaching Jesus brings is not, so read your Bible always. It's not, so serve always, or, or even evangelize always. It's, it's pray. That's what Jesus thinks is most important to come to next. In the long years of waiting, as we wait for the return of our Lord, and the difficulties that will come, pray. Now the outline where we're going to go this morning, first is going to look at the vulnerability of a disciple. Second, we're going to look at the trustworthiness of God. And then lastly, we're going to come to the real question. So again, a very quick recap. We're in an extended section of teaching where Jesus calls his disciples aside and and teaches them, what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? In chapter 17, again, Jesus taught on the kingdom of God, that in this phase of the kingdom that we're in, it's a spiritual reality. As hearts turn to Jesus, as we meet together, it's found in our midst. But we're waiting for the kingdom to come in fullness. We're waiting for the coming of Jesus. And it's in that period of waiting that Jesus tells us we should always pray. This is where we pick up in verse 1. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray, and not lose heart. This is interesting. This, the, the gospel writers don't do this very much, where they, they literally give you the point of the parable up front. It's like, in case the parable isn't clear enough, this is so important, I'm just going to tell you what it's about. It's about that you should always pray. Amen? We can go home, right? No. But Jesus has this whole parable that unpacks his teaching. This is verses 2 to 5. Follow along with me. And he said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. And for a while he refused. But afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I'll give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. So to give you a kind of overview of what's going on here, a a widow is coming to a local judge. She has some dispute. It's not clear what it is. It's probably a financial dispute. Uh, Some commentators speculate maybe there was, um, like the estate of her deceased husband is being mismanaged and she's not getting what she should be getting. And so she's, she's seeking for justice. But the idea is someone who does not have a lot to begin with, a widow in the ancient Near East, is being uh, kept from the little that she does rightfully have. And so she comes to this, just, this judge to seek some kind of justice. Now, Jesus' point in this is that we identify with her and her continual asking. That's, that's Jesus' overall point in this parable. But before we get to that, I actually want to just point out the fact that when Jesus wants to use a metaphor to describe a Christian as we wait for Jesus, he chooses a widow. Now, in the ancient Near East context, which was a very patriarchal society, If you're a woman, oftentimes you couldn't own land or property. Oftentimes you couldn't testify in court. Um, If you were were usually the property of your father, or once you got married, you were the property of your husband. 
And so if your husband dies and you're too old to remarry and you can't get a job, that's a pretty tough spot to be in. If you're going to pick someone who's vulnerable in the ancient Near East, you're going to you're going to mention a widow, which is why James says that caring for the widow and the orphan in their distress, that's a sign of true religion. He's picking the two most vulnerable categories of people, a widow and an orphan. And because a widow was very vulnerable, didn't have, again, legal status sometimes, certainly didn't have a lot of political capital, they were easily exploited. Someone could come along and take advantage of a widow, and she wouldn't have a whole lot of redress to be able to, you know, find justice. This is who Jesus chooses to, as, as a metaphor for who we are. He doesn't choose like a captain in the army or an athletic star or like, you know, a senator. He chooses a widow to describe who we are as we wait for the return of our Lord. And Jesus points that if you follow Jesus, there's something about that discipleship journey that's going to make you vulnerable in a unique way that wouldn't be the case if you didn't follow Jesus. It's going to mean that at times you might even be persecuted and exploited in ways that you wouldn't be if you weren't a follower of Jesus. Now, we live in a really unusual situation. Probably most of us, if we think about our identity as Christians in America, we probably don't think of vulnerable and easily exploited as the top two definitions of that. And that's because we live in this country that's governed by a constitution that guarantees certain religious freedoms. And so if that religious freedom is infringed on, there are legal avenues you can pursue. You have rights in America, and it's bound by a constitution, so it's not easily changed. That's unusual. That is unusual. We forget how unusual our, our situation is right now. And I was talking to my brother six months ago. My brother is a university professor in Abu Dhabi, which is the capital of the United Arab Emirates. It's a Muslim-majority country, I think, the Persian Gulf, don't quote me on that one, but it's in that area. And it's, it's technically tolerant of other religions, but obviously up to a certain point. And during COVID, everything shut down. And this was six months ago. So this is when everything was starting to open back up in the United States. And it was like, oh, this is what life is like. I'd forgotten. And I was talking to my brother, and, 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 and this is Abu Dhabi. Everyone is vaccinated because you don't have a choice. They just vaccinated everybody. And so everything is open. The bars, the restaurants, you know, the zoos, everything is open except the churches. They're closed. Not allowed to open, not allowed to meet in person. And then finally, the churches do open, but you're only allowed to meet, but, you know, traditionally you could meet, they, they met in a hotel, my brother's church met in a hotel. There was actually quite a bit of toleration uh, at that time. But, but when they're reopened, like, no, no, every church has to meet in, in one of, like, two buildings. And, and, and you can only meet, and there's no loitering afterwards. When the service is over, you have to leave immediately. And they literally had guards, like security guards, who would come into the sanctuary when the service finished, and they'd usher everybody out of the building. And you'd go out the front door of the building, and it's on this really busy street with like a three-foot-wide sidewalk, and it's Abu Dhabi, so it's 110 degrees. So you're, there's no fellowshipping here. And I'm listening to this, and it's like... What's the science behind requiring you know, them to meet in one building? Like, what could that possibly, what could possibly be the reason behind that? And my brother's like, Mike, Abu Dhabi is a totalitarian regime. They don't have to have reasons. And it just hit me. Like, I am so conditioned by growing up in a, in, in, in a context that has such unusual freedoms. I'm like, that's not fair. Well, that's been the norm for most of the history of Christianity. Even in, you know, you think of again, Protestant or Christian Europe, 
right, in the Reformation, 16, 17, 1800s, if you were Protestant in France, it could cost you your life. Or if you were anything other than Anglican in England during those centuries, you'd have all kinds of restrictions. What we experience now is just, it's unusual. And it's good to remember that because we take it for granted, but it's good to remember that because, statistically speaking, it probably won't last. That's just, that's just a fact. I don't know if it'll go away in my generation or my kids or my grandkids, but it is an anomaly. And are we prepared for when we find ourselves in a situation where, once again, like most Christians throughout history, we really are vulnerable, easily exploited people? Are we preparing our kids for that? But here's the thing. Even, you know, even in America, okay, so you're not going to have the secret police showing up at your door because you went to church this morning. It's not going to happen in America. But there's still a cost. There's still a sense in which we are vulnerable, even in America. There's a social stigma. There's certain Christian beliefs that no one's going to be bothered about, right? If we care for the orphan, the widow, you're going to get a lot of high fives. But if you start talking about sexual ethics, well, things will change. There's certain beliefs that are very taboo that could cost you, even in America. I don't know if you remember this story from 2014, but Brendan Eich, no idea how to pronounce that last name. But he was the co-founder and the CEO of Mozilla, uh, which at that time was the second largest search engine in the world. He was the co-founder. And he was the CEO at that time. And in 2014, it came out that he had made a $1,000 donation to a political campaign that was in favor of Proposition 8, which was a, 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 a movement to ban gay marriage in California. I'm not making any statement on that as good or bad policy. Point is, he made a $1,000 donation to a political campaign. It got out. And, and, and people went nuts, and he was forced to resign. This is the co-founder of Mozilla. He, he's the one who created JavaScript. JavaScript is like the computer language that allows for dynamic movement on a, on a website. So if you have a website that allows you to do anything on it without going to another page, like a drop-down menu, that's JavaScript. I mean, he was like an internet legend. But he got on the wrong side of a certain belief, and he was out. Now, I, I don't... I'm not interested in culture wars. That's not my point. I'm not fanning any flames. My point is that we're kidding ourselves. If we think we can just be kind, thoughtful, socially aware Christians, and it's not going to cost us anything. No. Jesus knew what he was talking about when he said the metaphor of a Christian as we wait for the return of our Lord is like a widow, someone who is vulnerable. There will be a cost to following Jesus. Even if it's just your neighbors not liking you or there being office talk about you at the workplace. We are, in fact, vulnerable. And I tell you what, even beyond just decision to follow Jesus, everyone is vulnerable to a certain extent because we live in a world that's marred by sin and death and sickness. And even in America, with the greatest healthcare system in the world, over, what, 600,000 people have died from COVID now? All of us are vulnerable to a certain extent, far more than we probably like to think. And we're all just a virus or a car accident or a fall away from a life-changing injury or death. We are vulnerable, and sometimes we're exploited like a widow in the ancient Near East. But here's Jesus' point in this passage. Although we are like that widow in, in many ways, probably more ways than we realize, unlike this widow, we don't cry out to an indifferent judge. We cry out to a God who's our Father, who's trustworthy. This brings us to our second point. So first point again, the vulnerability of the disciple, but second, the trustworthiness of God. Look at verses six to eight. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect 
who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Jesus is setting up a contrast here between this judge and God. The judge is described here as one who does not fear God, does not respect man. This is the kind of consummate egotist, the one who's like looking out for number one in all things. Doesn't love justice, doesn't care what's the right thing to do. He's going to do what works for him, what's best for him. Now, if you're a widow, that's the last person you want to be a judge over you. Because again, you don't have any any way to, 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 to benefit this guy. He, he has no incentive to pay attention to your, to your claim because you're a widow. But yet still, this judge, this unrighteous judge, who doesn't love justice, who doesn't care about what God thinks, who doesn't care about compassion, nonetheless gives in and gives the widow justice. And that's why Jesus says, and the Lord says in verse 6, hear what the unrighteous judge says. It's like, look, this guy doesn't love justice. He doesn't love this widow. He doesn't care about anything, but he still gives her justice in response to her incessant pleading. If even an unrighteous, indifferent, unjust judge will answer, how much more so a God who loves us, who's our father, who's compassionate, who's not just loves justice, he is just this judge gives justice, if this judge answers the cries of this woman, how much more so a God who is good and holy and compassionate? And that's the point. Yeah, in some ways we're like this widow, we're vulnerable, sometimes exploited or persecuted, but the God that we cry to is not like this judge, but he is trustworthy and because he's trustworthy, because he's demonstrated himself to be trustworthy to us, we know that he's listening to us. We know that he will, in fact, respond. And so in this long road of discipleship, again, the context of we're in this first phase of the kingdom of God, where we experience God, but it's like looking in a mirror dimly. We don't see Christ face to face. We're waiting for him to come back. As we wait in this long road of discipleship, as we pay the cost of following Jesus, as we experience just the normal suffering that comes with living in this world, hear the word of the Lord, Vine Street, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he'll give justice to them speedily. God will answer our prayers. And he oftentimes does so in the here and now. We feel overwhelmed by life and we ask for strength and, and he gives us not maybe all the strength we want but enough to endure or when we're afraid and he gives us courage to do what we would not normally be able to do or when we're sad or lonely or, and he meets us in those moments. God oftentimes answers us. If you're here alive and breathing, that means he's provided every physical need that you've needed up until this point. God really does answer us in the here and now. But sometimes... He doesn't answer us in the here and now. And our answers aren't going to come to us until we actually see the face of Christ. Well, how does that make sense of this passage? And again, this is where we remember that God is not like the unjust, indifferent judge who kind of doesn't listen because he doesn't care. Think of it this way. Every parent knows the cry of their ch child. If you put a room of 50 kids, to most people it sound like a just a cacophony of crying, but a parent knows, oh, that's my kid's crying now, I gotta go help them. And so when you're in a situation where you can't help your child, it's, it's brutal. 
No one prepared me for, for taking Caleb to get his shots as a one-year-old. Right? You're holding your one-year-old, and he's old enough to know, like, you're my daddy, and you should be not allowing this pain to happen to me. But you're having to like, hold him down so that the doctor can give him shots. And at that moment, you question every life decision you've ever made that brought you to this point. You're just like, this is awful. And your child is crying out to you, make it stop. Make it stop. But you know that getting a shot is much better than getting polio and living in an iron lung. The point is, you aren't able to answer your child because you know things they don't know that they can't understand yet. When we cry out to God and it feels like he doesn't answer us in the way we want him to answer us, it is not because he is an indifferent judge who doesn't care. It's because he is a God who is our father and like a father, he knows things we don't know, things that we can't understand. But the point of this passage isn't about when God doesn't answer, it's, it's that God will in fact answer. And in fact, again, in this context of we're waiting for the return of our Lord, we're in this first phase of the kingdom of God, when we experience Christ by faith, but we don't see him face to face, and we're longing for him to come back, and we're praying for him to return, God will answer that prayer one day. Christ will come back. That's, the point. that's, that's really what Jesus is focusing on. Our cries for Christ to come back, to make everything right that is wrong, to erase all that is evil, to dispel our doubts and our questions, our failings. Like that, will, that prayer will be answered. And when Christ's steps come back, and, 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 as we see him face to face, as we're in his presence, the long waiting that feels like it went on forever will, it will feel like it was a blink of the eye in comparison to being in the presence of our Lord. God will answer that prayer. We can count on it. But here, Jesus, in classic Jesus style, he turns the tables on us. We go into this thinking, the question is, in this time of hard discipleship, as we're waiting for the Lord to come back, and we're wondering, is God trustworthy? Why should I keep praying? Is he hearing me? That's what we think the question is. Is God trustworthy? And here, Jesus turns the tables. He says, no, no, no. The question is not whether God is trustworthy. The question is, when Christ comes back, will we find any trust in his people? As we get to the third point here, which is the real question, look at the second half of verse 8. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man returns, when he comes, will he find faith on earth? Again, Jesus is saying, look, God is a sure bet. He's proven himself trustworthy to you all your life. He's proven himself trustworthy to the church for 2,000 years. Like God, is, God is trustworthy. He doesn't need to show that anymore. He's shown it to us again and again and again and again and again. The question is, when Christ comes back, we find people with faith, not just in the sense of, like, will there be Christians? Of course there'll be Christians. But will there be Christians who are seeking God as this widow is seeking justice? People who are pleading. Again, look at verse 7. The promise the promise that God will answer is specific. He says, will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Again, verse one, he's told this parable to the effect that they ought always to pray. 
A faith that continually seeks God's face, continually prays. Not in the sense of, oh, I'm praying 24-7. Obviously, we need, to pray, we need to sleep, we need to eat, we need to work. But in the sense that we're asking God again and again and again. We don't ask once. It's like, well, God didn't answer. I'm done. We're asking again and again and again. We're seeking his face. Is Christ going to find that kind of faith when he returns? Faith that is calling for Christ to come back, pleading with him to come back. Or when Jesus Christ comes back, are we going to be surprised? You thought about that? When Christ comes back, are we going to be like, oh, today was the day. If I'd known, I would have prepared. Or is he going to come back and we're expecting him? I got this story from a sermon from John Stott. Got to give credit where credit is due. But it's an amazing story. And it's not a story he made up. It's a true story. Ernest Shackleton was an explorer, Arctic explorer in the early 1900s. This was during the, literally it's called the heroic age of Arctic exploration, where these guys did stuff that make us all feel a little bit like patsies, like they're like just crazy people doing crazy stuff. And so Ernest Shackleton got the idea he wanted to be the first explorer to sail across the Antarctic. So he's going to go from one ocean, sail over the South Pole to another ocean. That's his idea. So he's sailing, he has a ship with like 25 crew, he's sailing across the pole, and the, 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 like, as the winter hits, the sea freezes. It literally freezes his ship in place. So they spend like three months in the Antarctic. And then as the, as the, as the sea begins to thaw in the spring, the, the ice is moving. It literally crushes his ship. So then they have to abandon their ship. And they literally jump on an iceberg. And they float on an iceberg for about a month or two, hoping that it will float towards some kind of population center that can rescue them. When that's clearly not going to happen, they then have to get on the lifeboats that they were able to salvage from the boat, and they, and they row these small lifeboats five days in, through open, uh, open sea, and they, they end up at an island called Elephant Island, which if you Google it, it's, it's like a barren, ice-covered, uninhabitable island. And they stay there for a while, and again they realize no one's going to come this way, like, no one's going to find us here. And so then Shackleton takes four crew members, the biggest lifeboat, and sets out on a 700-mile journey to try to get to a, uh, it's called Georgia Island, uh, but it was a whaling station. And if you look on the map, it's like Elephant Island's this little dot, south of South America quite a ways, and then Georgia Island is like another island in the middle of the sea. And so not only are you crossing 700 miles of open sea with like icebergs and storms, and you're in a, like a 20-foot lifeboat, but it's like if you don't navigate this perfectly, you're going to miss it, and you're going to be in open sea. So Shackleton takes four crew members, leaves, and again, there's probably a 1% chance of success of him reaching this whaling station. And he ends up reaching it, and they, they bring help, and they rescue the rest of the crew. But that crew that stayed on Elephant Island were there for four and a half months, having said goodbye to Shackleton and the four crew members, pretty sure this is going to fail. He's not going to come back. They're going to die on this island. But when Shackleton returns, he was amazed by the morale of the people that were still on Elephant Island. You got to think, what would your morale be if you're on this, like, godforsaken island that's covered, I mean, it's just like, it's just brutal, barren, Arctic Circle stuff, and you're like, oh, he's, not, he's not making it back. Like, what? You're just going to divulge into, like, depression, and like, I'm not getting out of my sleeping bag. He gets back, and the morale's great. What happened? Well, the guy he left in charge was a guy named... Frank Wilde. Frank Wilde was the second in command. And Frank Wilde told him, well, one of the ways I kept up, I kept up the morale is every morning he'd wake up 
In all sight of all his crew, he'd pack up his belongings in cheerful anticipation, and he'd say to his crewmates, roll up your sleeping bag, boys. The boss may come today. He did that every day. Do we do that with the return of our Lord? Today might be the day he comes. Jesus in this text is preparing us for a long wait. Jesus is going to leave his disciples, and they have no idea how long that's going to be. He's preparing for that. How do you endure in that time of discipleship in which there'll be hardship and difficulty and trial? Times when we'll be vulnerable, times when we'll be attacked, just for being Christians. But at the appointed time, Jesus will come back. And that could be today, that could be tomorrow, it could be many years in the future. The point is that he is coming. It's not an if, it's a when. So Vine Street, always pray. Don't lose heart. Don't give up. Because the Lord might come today. Let's pray. Jesus, we, um, we confess at times we we don't really believe you're coming back. At times we're tempted to doubt it, to question why it's been so long. Forgive us of our unbelief. I pray that when you come back, you will find this church to be a church that is waiting for you. And that will we'll rejoice with the deepest parts of our hearts that will remember that all the struggle and hardship we walk through in this world and this life will be as nothing in the light of your face when we see you. Only you can give us that kind of faith. May you do so. Pray this in your holy and wonderful name. Amen.